Welcome to the Mom Powerment Podcast. This is the place where we help parents live a happy, healthy life with their kids, even when they're experiencing the most challenging behaviors. We are going to show you how to connect with your child and help them in their most difficult moments as we hear from experts in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Karin Jakubowski, an international speaker, public school principal, and former struggling student. The Mom Empowerment Podcast equips parents with science-based strategies to help you live a happy, healthy life with your kids. Welcome. It's my pleasure to introduce to you today our guest, Dr. Varlisha Gibbs. She has her PhD, OTD, which is a doctorate in occupational therapy, as well as a registered occupational therapist and licensed in the state of Delaware. She works for the American Occupational Therapy Association. She's an author, a speaker, and she is passionate about helping families with strategies to understand and care for their children with sensory and processing disorders. She's the author of a book called Self-Regulation and Mindfulness and co-author of Raising Kids with Sensory and Processing Disorders. Her next book is just about to be published, which focuses on moving from trauma-informed care to an action-based approach. In 2003, Dr. Gibbs founded Universal Progressive Therapy Incorporated in New Jersey, and the company was established with the focus of providing interdisciplinary and quality therapeutic services to families. As founding president of the company, she provided education and treatment and had many opportunities to study the areas of sensory integration, autism spectrum disorders, as well as family-centered care. Thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast, Dr. Gibbs. Um, welcome, welcome. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So could you start out and tell us what led you to the occupational therapy world? Yeah, that's a, a long story, but I'll try to make it concise. I grew up in Delaware. That's where I was born and raised. And I always wanted to enter into the medical profession. I wanted to be a pediatrician. And that was my goal. Um, and, you know, as a child, you kind of stick to that. Occupational therapy isn't one of those fields where it's prominent, um, you, you know, even today after a hundred plus years of the profession, you could say to someone, I'm an occupational therapist and they'll say, what's that? Um, is that physical therapist? Or you say it and then 10 minutes later, they'll say, so being a physical therapist and I'm like, I'm not a PT, I'm an OT. So, <laughs> so you know, it wasn't in the forefront of my mind. I didn't know what it was until um, I went to University of Delaware um, for my undergrad, Blue Hens. Um, so I was there and realized that you know, microbiology probably wasn't going to be my best friend. Uh, <laughs> that, as intelligent as everyone told me I was, which I still believe, yeah, we all have our limitations. So um, I realized that maybe this isn't the way for me to go. And that, you know, I really enjoyed being engaged with people. Not to say that MDs aren't, but during the studying process, it just kind of swayed me elsewhere. And so I didn't know what I was going to do after that. I, you know, I'm like, what am I going to do now? Um, I was taking various classes because you have to at some point graduate is what my advisor told me. <laughs> She's like, you know, uh, you're doing well, but you're, you know, a junior in college should have a major. And so... <laughs> And she's like, you have all these psychology classes. Maybe you should pick that. You got A's in every psych class. And I said, yeah, I really do enjoy the psychology classes, but 
you know, my mother at the time said, what are you going to do with that? You know, because I wasn't interested. And at that time to tell someone that's in college that they have to do another four plus years of college afterwards, psychology, you know, being um, a psychiatrist or that route didn't really, you know, speak to me either. So I said, okay, I'll just choose a major so we can get up out of here and graduate, you know, and not, and not be the 30 year old, you know, senior. Let's get on college. with this life. <laughs> yeah. And I have um, rheumatoid arthritis. And so speaking with a few different people, including my mother, I realized that I had occupational therapy along the way. And so an advisor had told me at UD, maybe you should look into this profession. It seems to really capture all the things you you enjoy. I I liked dancing. I was dancing since I was two years old at that time. I mean, I still have, but I don't really dance anymore in the forties, but you know, except for at the family functions when yeah, we- You're the star. <laughs> yeah. So I loved dancing and movement. I loved um, psychology, as I mentioned. Um, children because I wanted to be a pediatrician and fashion. I mean, I was all over the place. I took fashion classes. I took acting classes. Like, how can you use acting and, you know, any type of profession other than acting? But it actually really does fit well into occupational therapy. And so she told me about it. And I'm like, wait, I met these people before. I was hospitalized as a child. And this uh, lady came in and she had all this fun stuff and she made me get up out of the bed and she took me over to this fun room. And I'm like, who are you? And then she told me how to move and I was doing something wrong. <laughs> I remember that. And I'm like, I thought you were just here to play with me. Like what was going on? She was my occupational therapist, you know? So um, I, I, once I realized what OT was, that's how I started my journey. I'm like, finally, this thing that fits all those, you know, quirky qualities that I have and my love for science. I didn't mention that. I do love science, do love anatomy. And in my journey of OT, realized that I love neuroanatomy. So. Oh my gosh. Like, you are all over the place. Yeah. Just a I little. love, I love yeah. hearing about all of your interests to the dance, to the um, sciences, to the psychology, like, oh, that, that is fascinating. Amazing. So what landed you in the hospital and how old were you? Um, so I have a condition, I mentioned the rheumatoid arthritis, but I was born with a condition called elliptocytosis, which is, it's rare. It doesn't cause too many complications. Um, I think I have one other family member that I know of that has the diagnosis. Um, and ironically, she and I talk because we both have um, GI gut conditions as well. So I discovered I have celiac later on. So I think it's one of those things where they don't really know, you know, but mm -hmm. during that and not time, back then. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so these days, my doctor um, wow. was really ahead of his time. And he, you know, I was having a lot of joint issues and pain despite dancing and being an active child. Um, and I, you know, I would have these weird things. And so he decided to cast my, my leg. Um, and do some, run some further tests. So I was about eight years old when he put me in a hospital for that, which was probably the rheumatoid arthritis, which was probably the celiac leading to the inflammatory process in my body. Now that I, I know that now. I feel and how much old were you? When I was diagnosed. In the hospital, when you had, were in the hospital? About eight years old. Oh, so you, yeah. you missed a portion of school or it wasn't that long? I did. Now I remember 
so I no longer live in Delaware, but when I lived in Delaware, I went to um, Colwick Elementary School. I don't think it's there anymore. Um, okay. And I was in third grade. So whatever age that was. So I eight, do remember. Seven or eight. Yep. So I do remember missing a portion oh, of school. That's so tough. Yeah. It that's wasn't too cool. long. It wasn't too bad. You know, you get a lot of attention when you come back with crutches, right? Yeah. Yeah. You do. <laughs> Kids, oh, they have such a sweet, pure heart and so innocent and just love helping. You get like 15 helpers in two seconds. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, sorry that I digress, but I was so curious to hear more about that. So why did you write the book on self-regulation or how did you get into self-regulation or with the autism spectrum disorders? Like what kind of led you kind of down that more focused path? Mm-hmm. Well, in occupational therapy, there is a, um, I would say, let me just start with Jean Ayers back in 1975, I believe somewhere around there, uh, really pioneered sensory integration, right? That being a theory and a technique for working with children that really weren't understood during that time. Um, And over the years with her research, you know, she had discovered that it really correlated to sensory processing disorders or sensory integration disorders, as they called it back then. Um, And so there's a lot of uh, education and continuing education around sensory processing, you know, as an occupational therapist. And really, you know, that work of hers, um, I see her as a pioneer, and there are several that have followed her work um, that have spread outside of the OT community. Um, but I am a little biased that that is, you know, it's OT. <laughs> but but we're, we're great at sharing that wealth. I'm sure, you know, as you know, you know, teaching other people and really highlighting the fact that sensory processing is key. I, I don't care what diagnosis you're working on, in my opinion, you have to address sensory processing because you first have to have their attention to do anything, whether it's teaching, whether it's therapy, uh, whatever. And so that path of really studying that work and then being asked to do different speaking engagements on it. Um, at one point I was given a, a title of a, an event they wanted me to talk on self-regulation. And it's a concept that I you know, knew, I heard about it. Obviously, you know, we throw it around a lot and that had to be, gosh, at this point, maybe 10 years ago. And I said, self-regulation, like, do you mean sensory processing? And the more I delved into the research, I said, it's, it is sensory processing, but it's a bit more. It's also emotional regulation and it's also your executive functioning or your cognition and all three, like a triad working together for success and for outcomes for you to be able to adapt your response as you're engaging with the environment. And so I delved into more research because anytime you teach, you have to research people don't always understand that, right? We don't come out as experts. You you learn along the way as well. You should continue that education. And that's why you actually get CEs for teaching, right? But, um, but when, you, when you do that process, for me, it was highlighting um, a connection with connecting the dots with so many things that I had learned along the way, the neuroanatomy piece of it. I'm like, wow, you know, we learn neuro- neuroanatomy when you study to be an occupational therapist or an occupational therapy assistant, they learn this as well. But, you know, connecting those pieces to your clients doesn't always happen in the classroom. And so it happened for me more so outside of the classroom. And I fell in love with the topic and then mindfulness came along and I added that to it as well um, because I realized that that's the research is showing mindfulness really helps with self-regulation and 
that's how I got to the book of self-regulation and mindfulness. And I did a lot of speaking engagements and people would ask me like, what book would you recommend for what you talked on? You know, this is great. Where can I find more exercises for that? Or you talked about primitive reflexes. What do you, you know, suggest? And I didn't have much of recommendations for them. So I wrote the book. And for those of you listening, the book, uh, Self-Regulation Mindfulness is available on Amazon. And I was reading the reviews this week and, and several of the reviews actually vegged exactly what you said. We haven't found a source that has given us all of this in one place. And that was really, you know, awesome. Thank you so much for writing that book for all those people out there reading it and might never come back and say, thank you. It's awesome. Just take a minute and really appreciate and honor and, and hear, hear your work and, and the thoughts behind the work. So what would a parent um, notice be seeing in their kid that would help them say, oh, maybe I should look into someone to help me with sensory um, you know, processing issues or self-regulation? What are some actual like, like maybe a, a mom doesn't know that term to self-diagnose that her child have issues with that. What might even, you know, the parents see or might, might, might she hear from a teacher that they're describing? Can you help us with that a little bit more? Certainly. And so let me start with the diagnoses of uh, sensory processing disorder. I think that would help um, capture that. Um, and then I'll go into uh, some other components. With sensory processing disorder, there are three um, overarching um, areas. But let me backtrack and say, you will not go to your, let's say, pediatrician and you know get a diagnosis of sensory processing disorder for you then to get therapy. Um, unfortunately, it's not recognized in our DSM, what we call for diagnostic of the process for that. So they may recognize it. I've had some physicians when I had my private practice write a script for a diagnosis of SPD, but I can't bill for it, unfortunately, unless it's along with autism or, you know, for instance, our children with ADHD, which I'll talk about for self-regulation. Um, but that being said, clinically, right, clinically and even in the classrooms, we recognize it um, as a condition, whether it's standalone or with something else, because we have to address it. Um, there is sensory modulation disorder as one form. And with sensory modulation disorder, that's when you may see, and now let me talk a little bit more of the, I guess, top down of what parents may see, which what teachers may see. You would see perhaps a child that is hyper aroused. Um, they may be craving input. They may love throwing themselves onto things or, or other people, little rough play. Um, you know, you may find yourself, let's say pre-COVID, sorry to say it, but, you know, when you're meeting up with people, you know, having that kind of uncomfortable feeling like other children may be playing a little bit differently. You notice that your child may be kind of not, not the bully, but just maybe they have poor, poor body awareness and they're a little rough and um, kind of dominating, right? Um, they may love climbing and crashing, risk takers, right? Just a risky, you know, child that, and, and it's probably enjoying that. Even if, if they run and they fall and you think that they're, they injured themselves, they may not process that input or that sensation like we would. We would probably be still remaining on the ground for a bit of a time, whereas they just hop up and keep it moving, right? So that child, which we would call, um, you know, our sensory cravers, some people may see, say seekers, but um, craving is the term that we've been using now. 
Um, so you also have your children that are almost the opposite of that. The hypervigilant children that are avoiders, they may be the children that would you take them to a birthday party and they want to stay right by your side. It goes a little deeper than just being shy. You know, they may cover their ears. Um, they don't like certain clothing, right? They're uncomfortable with wearing, like they want to wear their sweatpants versus denim jeans. They may have an aversion to different smells um, and so forth. Um, both of those children, we may see have trouble with uh, sleeping patterns and things of that nature. Eating, they may have a preference of certain foods. The child that's avoiding may really um, have sensitivity in their mouth, hence they're picky eaters. The child that is craving may crave certain textures to meet their needs, right? To, to meet that, that threshold, we would call it. We also have children that have trouble discriminating between sensory stimuli. So um, for instance, a child that is highly distracted by noise because they may not be able to block out that sound versus the sound that they're supposed to be attending to. And that's throughout the body. That sound is just one example of poor discrimination, detecting two different stimuli. Um, but that's another form of sensory processing disorder, sensory discrimination disorder. Um, and then we also have our children that have, this is probably, and, and let me backtrack with sensory discrimination disorder. You may also see the children that have trouble detecting temperature. Um, you know, the difference between cold and, and, and hot we may feel like we need to put on a big winter coat and they may not. And that also could be the craver as well, just for a different reason, right? They, they want that sensation. Uh, Sensory-based motor disorder is a little harder, I think, to detect. Um, we may not recognize that as a sensory condition, if you will, but children that are kind of clumsy um, or they have trouble sitting for a long time, they may look like a child that has ADHD but their core, you know, they have an instability in their core, you know, their belly, their back, their shoulders. Whereas if you had weakness in those areas, sitting without significant support or the correct support could cause you to be a fidgeter, want to move around a lot. And you may get that feedback from a teacher that says, you know, it's really a hard time sitting still um, and paying attention. But then you go to get the diagnosis and they say, it's not ADHD, doesn't fit the criteria because you have to have these uh, symptoms in different environments. And we're not seeing it here, here, even though they have trouble sitting in school. So that could be a red flag for a parent. So that's the sensory processing disorder piece. You can have that along with ADHD, along with autism as a comorbidity. Um, but those two diagnoses as well, if they do have ADHD um, and if they do have autism, um, we do need to address self-regulation. Um, teaching them techniques to self-regulate, being aware of it, even if they're on medication that seems to be helping them. Um, we all need to learn how to self-regulate to understand what our bodies need as we do. You know, I have my coffee here. That's how I self-regulate, right? So we do. Adults yeah. do it so seamlessly and we don't even recognize and identify it. And yet Sometimes I think we put kids in a box and they do one little thing and we're like, why are you doing that? And, and to ourselves, like we doodle, we take a break, we go to the bathroom, we look at our cell phone, like all those things. And sometimes I think we don't let kids do those natural sort of breaks to just monitor themselves that it's mm -hmm. funny. We, we, we take them all day long. <laughs> exactly. 
exactly. And we have the independence to do that, right? Yeah. And, and to advocate for ourselves. But that's a big piece of self-regulation is putting language to it for our children and for our parents. And in this time where a lot of children have gone to remote learning, we've gone back to in-person, vice versa, who knows where, you know, the path leads forward. But it was interesting to hear a parent share that their third grade daughter said, when I'm at home on Zoom, I feel more in control of my learning. Yes. And, and the mom was just kind of a taken aback for a, a third grader to actually really <laughs> recognize, right? And articulate yes. that and, and yes. reflect on that. That was that was, that was amazing. And as much as I talk to kids and, and they're so excited to be back in person, you know, they're like, oh, this beats Zoom any day. But, um, you know, it, it's just interesting because sometimes in that classroom, it can be so overstimulating and we all walk in and, and we, we see kids do what we need them to do all day long, all the, most days. And, and when someone does something a little unexpected, it's like, what's wrong? Why are they doing, why are they doing that? You know? And um, so I think just more of understanding this and it, with me being in the education field, I feel like I have seen just a disconnection of a, of a lack of experts helping teachers understand kids, right? Like mm-hmm. we know the academic piece, but when that kid is struggling with any number of the things you just shared, I would love to be able to help teachers understand your perspective from your expertise, right? Because if they understand that they might be able to help in a way that isn't, why, why are they doing this? Or, well, like, kid can't sit still on the carpet during reading like he needs to focus and listen you know he's struggling in reading so now we're making an academic struggle where maybe it is his core that isn't supported he had the right supports in place for therapy etc exactly i'll I'll, I'll stop talking no i i I appreciate that to hear what you're saying and um so if a parent saw or listened to what you were just sharing and maybe one piece of it resounded with wow you know i think my child kind of see those things with the child, where would you direct them to go or, or who, who, what should be their next step? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say it, um, it depends on the age of the child and, and resources, because we know access and resources is a challenge. Um, but certainly uh, I would say a consultation to start with an occupational therapist, um, because, you know, getting, I'm sorry. Oh, Am I still here? Yeah, you're here. Okay, my <laughs> my my system kind of went out. It went it? black for a second. Right. Um, okay. So yeah, I, I would say a consultation with an occupational therapist um, is it's crucial that you have someone that has that expertise. Now there are other professions that are great. I can speak mostly to mine, right? <laughs> In terms of um, the OT scope of practice, being able to see. Um, you know, that the cognitive piece that's required for learning in addition to that sensory piece that I just walked you through, um, as well as we also, I call us contextual interventionists because we look at the environment. Um, we look at um, all the components of the environment, which not just the physical, but also the people that are there. Um, and we look at it to see if there's a fit with the child, right? And what could be leading to some of the challenges that we're seeing. I do think we're kind of, you know, I would recommend that to parents, but also to teachers, because I feel like we're kind of underutilized in that way of, you know, we're, let me just put this disclaimer out there. OTs are great with working on handwriting, but we're not handwriting teachers. 
Great clarification. <laughs> and all the OTs out there were like, Amen. Hey, you're not your kids. <laughs> not that we're not going to do handwriting. I'm not saying that, but I know you do. You, know, you may have a child come to a session because of handwriting and IEP. And if I were working in your school, you would say, "What? Okay, do you have any writing samples?" I may say, "Not today. We didn't even touch a pencil today." <laughs> Because we work on the whole body, I may work on their vision, I may work on their self-regulation for them to even sit there with that pencil. So, yeah, so I, I would, you know, I would start with OT and encourage our educators to seek them out more often. And, and I would think our, our school counselors and school psychologists, when I do speaking engagements, they come out, they come to the workshops asking for more tools, and they feel like a lot is really being placed on them. Um, whereas they, oh they're gosh. seeking a team effort. They want to work with OTs, but yeah. You know, and you only know what you know, exactly. and if you're only functioning out of your, what your knowledge is at they're times met. you can sit there and say, maybe there is something else, or sometimes you just deal with the answers that, and the knowledge that you have to share. But, um, it's so important to just keep, keep learning. And, and I love to just be able to connect with more experts to bring that expertise to the field. Like I was mentioning earlier. So not to try to change gears just for a little bit, but so you, you, you wrote or you're about to publish a book on trauma, right? Yes. Yes. So what started all of that process? Because that's like the next buzzword that we're all trying to learn more about. And I'll even say pre-COVID, you know, as educators, we've got trauma training coming out from the state and it feels like none of us can stay ahead of being informed enough for trauma and for practices, self-care. I mean, this is... This is the whole next area that we were all kind of walking into pre-COVID and now obviously everything is happening all at once. But what led you to write that book and what's that book about? Yes, yeah, so I, um, years ago when I first started hearing that that trendy term, right, the trauma, um, and I'm, I was thinking like, what, what is this? Because we, we were all aware of PTSD and I don't have to go through the whole story, right, of the ACE study. But, you know, when it first was brought to light for me, I remember talking to a colleague and I said, huh, well, that's interesting, you know, that you're going to look into that. I'm interested as well. It's not really my area of work, but yeah, tell me what you, you learn. And so as an educator, you know, in academia, I was a former chair at Wesley College. Um, Wesley has the first OT program in Delaware, the only OT program for master's level. Um, so I started that program. And when I was there, you know, working with our students, as we had a pro bono clinic there as well. So I started looking more into it. And really out of, um, I would say, starting from hearing from other colleagues, and then learning more myself, realized I've been working with children with trauma almost my, my entire career, actually. Wow. Um, I started off working in um, New Jersey. I went to school at Columbia for OT and I lived in Northern New Jersey. Um, and actually at one point in Newark, New Jersey, if anyone's familiar with that area. And so I worked, um, one of my field works uh, started off in a hospital, um, which was a what they call a psych ward for children. So age three up to 18. Three. Wow. Yes. And I, I saw children being thrown into the quiet room, which is a locked padded room. And it's like hearing those noises of them trying to get out and Amazing. just horrible stories. Um, a lot of our children that were in a foster care system were there in that program. Right. Um, and seeing a teenager that had psychosis 
that that led I'm not going to say it was the cause but her traumatic story prior to and her sharing that story really highlighted for me the impact that trauma could have on function even on intellect right so um, reflecting back on all those experiences and realizing these are the children I've been servicing. I worked in Brooklyn, New York and Coney Island, right? So those were the children that I've been treating and really connecting to and realized that, yeah, I was working on self-regulation with them and using some sensory-based techniques with them. Um, but explaining the why was the missing piece I didn't have back then. I couldn't explain per se to the teacher why this child was having so much you know, trouble in their classroom. Whereas the parents saying, we don't have that problem at home, right? Like, so I, I started making those connections. And so after so many years of speaking and talking on sensory processing disorder, autism and ADHD, I found myself slipping into my objectives in trauma, in trauma, right? And so we started having these conversations and I said, there is, I love trauma-informed care. It highlighted so much for us, the missing piece of the puzzle, right? That we, we weren't talking about it, we weren't acknowledging it. And that's one of the first steps, right? The acknowledgement piece, the awareness piece when you do trauma-informed care. As a, a therapist and a hands-on practitioner, I felt like we need to also now, now that we know, let's take it a step further. Like, thank you for, you know, raising the, the red flag. Thank you for telling me how I shouldn't put the blame on the child, right? It's not what's wrong with you. It's what happened to you. But now what are some real concrete strategies that right. we could use? I felt like that was the missing piece. And as I started writing this book, I discovered that there were other people that I highlight and reference in the text um, that really felt the same way. They were like, it's time to move past, not past per se, we're going to bring it with us, right? We're going to bring that luggage with us. But now let's take it to the next part of our journey in terms of caring for everyone that's experiencing trauma. And so it couldn't be more timely, yeah, you know, for sure. in the state that we're in now. And when does it publish? I don't have the specific date. We're okay. aimed for spring 2021. Spring 2021. All right, listeners. Yeah. She might do a pre-sale. If she does, I'll give you a special code. We'll come back to you with that. <laughs> Absolutely. Is the we, book, we'd love to do that. Yeah. Is the book written for uh, parents or teachers or both? So the book is geared toward, and actually um, I have a colleague who we've had some uh, people that have given case studies. Um, and so I do have a colleague in the school district um, that, that gave me, um, Adrian Simpson, who gave me um, some case studies. Do you know Adrian? Yes, love Adrian. <laughs> there should be more Adrians in the world. Love yes, her. yes. Show so, Adrian. Yeah, yes. her, her and Montoria really um, are. Yeah, so know. Adrian is now a behavior coach in our district office. Yeah. Yeah, she's hey, awesome. What a great. huge resource, heart, passion for kids, helping teachers, just, yeah. Yeah. More people so, like her digress a little bit I just had I to give my, my shout out to you know my Delaware That's people that awesome. uh that have uh you know really inspired me to you know to educate um and to really look at it interprofessionally and and to collaborate um yeah. you know and and throughout the age ranges so hearing her stories and you know we mentioned Montoria and hearing her stories of what the children need I would say it, it I geared it to allied health professionals but um, that really includes, I would say, 
our educators, those that are working in the schools, right? Um, it's, and I say that because, yes, it could be read by a psychologist, a psychiatrist. They may actually enjoy it and use it. But I also wanted to gear it to those folks that I just mentioned that, you know, they can then take these strategies and um, exercises, handouts, share it with teachers. So they may be the paraprofessional that is reading that material, right? So working with the therapist that says, hey, I think, you know, Johnny could use this. Here's a, um, a worksheet from the book that I want to work with you on to help him, right? So it's geared towards that population of service providers that may not be providing, they may or may not be providing direct intervention. You know, we have people that are working with cognitive behavioral therapy, like specific trauma-based services. It's geared more to the others, what happens in between that, right? What happens to the child that may not be receiving direct services, but still needs support. Yeah. And uh, I wrote my dissertation on something that I found a need in schools where a kid didn't qualify for a 504 or an IEP, but gosh darn it, struggled with so many things. And I, I, I coined the term, which I think I took from also the similar program that I found in the UK, because I thought I was creating this learning mentor, I called them. And I found this exact job in the UK as, as part of my, as I was studying and writing the dissertation, but it's these kids who they have a barrier to their learning. And it could be any number of emotional, social, you know, academic or physical um, issues, but it's a person who helps that family figure out what, what is that barrier and how can we remove it so that they can learn, right? And, and sometimes if we educate um, teachers, paraprofessionals from this kind of OTPT psychologist, just doctor expert area, maybe they'll, they'll be able to help the kids who are walking to school who nobody knows they have those issues and they haven't been diagnosed yet. And they're not in therapy and IAP services, you know, and, and documented supports required. But I, I only think that could help help us in our field where sometimes we're just, we just, we, we may be blaming something on a kid for something that really isn't the main issue. Exactly. We really need to take more of a tiered approach, right, to services. Um, and I'm speaking more specifically to the schools at this point, you know. Um, really not just looking at those children that are at the top of your list, the, the one-on-one, but there are children that are in between and then there's the entire school, right? <laughs> so, you know, and um, I, I will say this. So my current full-time job is at AOTA, so American Occupational Therapy Association. And if you go to our website, aota.org, we have a page for back to school and we have a page for virtual learning as well, where we've come up with a lot of resources um, to, to talk about the various things that we're discussing today. And one of them, you know, was looking at the mental health, the behavioral health piece of it. And so really, and there's, we have other resources there that talk about the importance of tertiary and primary second, you know, those tiered approaches to care mm -hmm. and to service provision. It's very important. And I think, again, that's where OTs are underutilized. I'm sure there's other school professionals that are underutilized that could really help with that tiered approach before you have the child rolling on the ground or getting into altercations with their peers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if there's one thing you would say to parents right now, where on a normal day, there's the stress of just raising kids in general, but with so much unpredictability, the uncertainty, um, what, what word of advice would you, would, would you give to moms or parents listening? Mm -hmm. I would say our children, 
whether they have a diagnosis or not, or probably I would say 90% of the time, like they're smarter than what we realized, right? <laughs> we think that they don't know and you're not listening. They don't pay attention to what's going on and they do. So we have to be as transparent as we can without putting the burden on them, but don't hide things from them either, right? Um, allow them to know. It's just like if you were addressing anxiety with a child in the classroom, I would tell you that they need to know what comes next. They need a picture schedule. They don't need surprises as much as you can give them that information. That's the same advice I would give to parents now. You know, allowing them to understand what's happening in the present and then if possible, what to expect next. So our children here, we they have not gone back face to face. And frankly, my children love being home. Um, it's just a personality type. It's a learning style and they're getting straight A's. So it's something, to, works, you know, works it, for them. It, it works for them. Yeah. So it, but if we ever got close to that stage again, my job would be to prep them for that return. Right. And that is just, that could be talking. Um, it could be looking at the schedules together. It could be, if you're going to a new environment, looking at pictures of that school. So for parents, that would be the main piece of advice would be preparing your child um, for transitions, whether it's, you know, school transitions, or even just in general, if you're going, let's say you discovered that maybe your child does need services after we talk, had this conversation today, and what does it look like to even get them to that therapist, yeah. prepping them for that. So we, we you don't want to always just keep, you know, throwing our children into these different situations and environments without giving them that, that knowledge and that information, right, mm -hmm. before so. That's so good. I, I, always, I heard this term once, kids do well if they can. And if they can't, it's up to us to figure out why. Yeah. And if we, if we can just take that approach um, and kids, kids are so resilient. They're more resilient than like, I think you're saying and alluded to that we give them credit for. Um, so sometimes it's our anxiety or fear, <laughs> right? That's kind of like coming out of where we're, I can't think of that word putting it on them or projecting, or right? projecting on them. Right. Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, what, what does Mark Twain say? Like I've lived, I've had some horrible things um, going on in my life and some of them actually happened. So, so it just tells you how much we can create in our mind that can hold us back and be a stumbling block. But so yes, true. the predictability, the routines, the, 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 the helping them know what to expect, or even just listening to them. Like, yeah. how do you feel about that? How does it feel to be home? How does, how does it feel, you know, how, how is it different from being a person? Just letting them be okay with whatever it is that it is for them, right? Yes. And I actually would add real quickly that this whole situation that we've been in, I think has highlighted the importance of context and environment, right? So if your child is thriving at home and you're shocked, I heard a mom yesterday, she has a child, two children with autism. And she was shocked that her children were thriving with virtual learning. She said it's the complete opposite of what she would have ever expected for them. Right. And so look at that and say, why, right? Mm -hmm. Look at the, the lighting. I mean, obviously we're probably more comfortable at home, but in general, look at what the environment looks like uh, and then question why they're thriving or why they are not. Who's there with them? What sounds are there? What visual things are there? Are the walls too distracting for them in the classroom? Is the seating not comfortable for them in the classroom? So look at all of that now. You know, this is our opportunity to do that. Yeah, 
Yeah, it really is. Well, I could keep talking and talking with you for <laughs> for a long time, but I want to respect your time and the time of our listeners. But uh, in 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 closing, I will add in the description the links that to your website, uh, the titles to your books. Let us know when your next book's coming out so I can help you um, advertise that in any way. And the AOTA.org website, which sounds like an awesome link that I'll, I'd like to look into more myself. Um, and then uh, what's the best way for people to reach and or find you? So um, you can reach me at my, my email is info at drvgibbs com and I'll, I'll give you this to put in your show notes as well. Um, okay, info at drvgibbs.com mm -hmm. um, and you can find me on my website, Dr. V. Gibbs. Um, and you can find my, my books and things on Amazon as you had shared before. Um, there's not too many Varlisha Gibbs out there, so you can find me there. I, I am pretty active on LinkedIn and mm -hmm. um, Twitter as well. And mostly LinkedIn and Twitter, some, some Instagram and Facebook, but you can find me on the social media. Yep. That's all we've got for this episode of the mom empowerment podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. I can't wait to help you live a happier and healthy life with your kids. I'm your host, Dr. Jekabowski, and I appreciate you taking the time. Click subscribe today, and we can't wait to have you join us on our upcoming episodes. Thanks. And remember, don't worry, be happy.